Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Accelerating your fandom, this is Flash TV Talk. Welcome to Flash TV Talk, the fan podcast dedicated to reviews, news, and spoilers for the hit CW show, The Flash. I'm Bo, and today I've got something really special for you guys. Earlier this year, Bell and I went back and took a look at the series Young Justice, and specifically season one. It's a really awesome animated series, and if you've never gotten a chance to see it, I kind of like to refer to it as the animated Firefly. I mean, it really got canceled before its time, and among other things, it's notable for being the only animated series that has ever showcased all four members of the Flash family to have gone by that name. So it's really special, and if you're a Flash fan, you gotta check it out. Once we got done with our series review, we really wanted to bring an expert in to kind of help us close out our discussion, and we thought, who better than Greg Wiseman? Uh, He was a producer on Young Justice. He's actually executive producer for the upcoming Star Wars Rebels animated series, and we really had a great time talking with him. So without further ado, here's Greg Wiseman. Uh, He was producer for the Young Justice. He's an executive producer on the upcoming Star Wars Rebels, and Greg, we are just thrilled that uh, you were able to join us today. Well, thanks. I appreciate you doing it. So can you educate us a bit on what the responsibilities of a producer slash executive producer are on uh, on an animated TV show? Uh, well, the producer title is can be kind of vague. Um, for example, on Gargoyles, I started out as a co-producer, and then I became a producer and then a supervising producer, and it was all the same job. On which I was a supervisory producer on... Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, I was a supervising producer on Young Justice. I was uh, um, uh, just a producer, and on Star Wars Rebels uh, uh, Season 1, I I was an executive producer, which is the nicest title of them all. (laughs) In essence, they're all the same job. Um, So uh, what it really entails, uh, particularly for a guy like me, is I'm in charge of uh, the whole show, usually with a, uh, not usually, always with a partner, in case of Young Justice, that was Brandon Vietti. And uh, the division of labor was pretty much, I was in charge of the writing, though Brandon contributed a huge amount to that. Um, and uh, we both uh, were there for all the voice recording sessions. And then uh, Brandon's in charge of the design and direction of the show. So again, I'm kibitzing throughout that whole process as well. And then we both did all of post-production together. Now you've actually, you've written for both comic books and animated television shows. Could you kind of tell us about the similarities and some of the differences between writing for both the screen and the panel? There are a lot of similarities. I mean, the for starters, the thing that you're writing isn't a finished product for both those mediums. Uh, for uh, their blueprints you know, uh, at best, um, you know, the script for an episode of a television series, the script for an issue of a comic book are not designed in any way, shape or form to be a final product. 
they're designed to give the artist or artists or actors um, enough information as they need, as much information as they need in order to create something that gets us toward that final product. Um, so one of the things that I try to do in both situations is to um, make the scripts idiot-proof. Now, that sounds like I think everyone who's going after me in the process is an idiot, and that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. These are brilliant people I'm collaborating with. The point is, is that the point is clarity. What I'm trying to do is write with tremendous clarity um, so that they aren't guessing it to what I'm trying to accomplish or what I'm looking for. They know that they contribute as well. We may make changes along the way during the process. We may make little cuts. We may make little additions. We may do all sorts of things. But we want all of that to be coming out of a place where we all are on the same page as to what we're trying to accomplish. And that's the job of the script, to, to make sure that that's coming across with clarity. Um, because the last thing we want is for everybody to read the script and be guessing at what we're trying to do here. Right. Um, so that's job one. Otherwise, the differences are, are fairly superficial. Um, you know, uh, particularly in animation, there are a lot of different formats that people use, but there's still a sort of teleplay format that is that is most common. Uh, typically in animation, we break down our shots more. Live action uh, screenplay tends to be written in master shots, leaving the camera angles and stuff to the directors. An animation script tends to be uh, more detailed, breaking down camera shots, camera angles, though, of course, the storyboard artist can always choose to make those changes. But the point of, uh, of making those calls in the script in the first place is, again, a point of clarity. If the storyboard artist knows what we're trying to get across here by saying this is a close-up here or this is a wide shot there, they can make a change but they are making the change from a place of knowing as opposed to a place of ignorance. Sure. Um, a comic book script. I, I don't know two comic book writers on the planet who use the same format, mm-hmm. um, but they all still are designed to do the same basic thing, which is to get as much information across as possible. Um, the main real difference between writing for a television and writing for a typical comic book is that if you're writing for a 20 to 24 page comic book, that's about the equivalent in content of one act of a TV episode. Mm. So in order to tell a story that took you three acts, as most do, that is a half hour on television, you'd need three issues really to do it justice on the page. Um, And so that's a big change that, um, I noticed, actually, uh, I started in comics, moved to television. I didn't really notice it then, but when I moved back from television to comics on occasion, that's when you sort of discover, oh, I'm telling the story here, and there's no way I'm fitting this into one issue right. unless I you know, just cut a ton of material out or tell a much thinner story. Since I'm not a big fan of thin stories, I wind up doing two or three parters just to get the equivalent of a single episode. So if you were doing the kind of story that takes a couple episodes to tell suddenly you're talking about a six-issue story or something like that. Well, in addition to uh, television and 
uh, comics, you've also written a novel titled Reign of the Ghost, which was released last year. Uh, can you tell us about that and its upcoming sequel, Spirits of Ash and Foam? Yeah, it's not upcoming anymore. Spirits came out this past Tuesday. Um, oh, there you go. Reign of, Reign of the Ghost, which is spelled R-A-I-N for those listening and not reading along. <laughs> um, Reign of the Ghost came out last December. It's the story of a 13-year-old girl named Rain Seek who lives on a chain of Caribbean islands called the Ghost Keys, or for short, the Ghosts. And um, she, her parents work in the tourist service industry. Her mother runs a bed and breakfast. Her father runs a charter boat service. And already at age 13, Rain is feeling trapped. She feels like she's going to spend her entire life on these same eight islands, working for tourists, um, making their beds, cutting their bait, that kind of thing. And she just feels like there's never going to be any surprises in her life. And she is given from her maternal grandfather a gift. It's a family heirloom. It's a, a golden armband with two snakes intertwined. And uh, she eventually realizes that when she wears this, she can see and talk to ghosts. And she finds out she's got a destiny, a larger mission. And suddenly this world, which was feeling very small that she lived in, becomes very big. There's a mystery to solve, or actually there are a number of mysteries to solve, and uh, there are things to discover, and she has a real purpose in life. And uh, that story runs across it. In theory, it's a nine-book series. I've written the first two. They're both out now. I'm in, I'm in the middle of researching the third one, and we'll start writing it shortly. Um, and uh, so Rain has a World War II mystery, ghost story in there, uh, Spirits of Ash and Foam uh, is a story of uh, vampires and mermaids, but it's, which is sort of an unusual combination to begin with, <laughs> but um, uh, it uh, all involves the mythology of the Taino people who were native for the pre-Columbian uh, Native Americans in the Caribbean uh, when Columbus arrived. And that's a very rich mythology, um, as rich as Greek mythology or Norse mythology or Egyptian mythology, but it's one that hasn't been explored to any great degree in popular culture. And so it felt like, you know, virgin territory a bit. And so um, I'm trying to do it justice uh, with a diverse cast and in a uh, I think a fairly novel setting, um, both on the realistic side, that is the tourist industry in the Caribbean, and on the mystic side with the Taino mythology. It's and uh, I'm very proud of both these books and hope your listeners go pick them up. They're available on ebook or, you know, in paperback, and um, you can order them on. Amazon or any website like that, or you can go into any bookstore if they don't literally have them on the shelves the day you walk in. You can go to their front desk and order them. Yeah, it sounds like a really, really fresh idea. I really love the, the sound of that and kind of the combinations that you're working on there. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. You've cited uh, William Shakespeare as a great influence of yours, and we were kind of wondering, you know, with the influence of classic literature, how important do you really feel that is to up-and-coming writers and as well as audiences who are, you know, partaking in, in your content? Well, I think it's essential. Um, I really do. I mean, uh, a writer who isn't familiar with classic literature actually is and doesn't know it. 
but what they're familiar with, uh, they may not have read Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, but they've seen um, Ten Things I Hate About You. Right. Uh, or, you know, or, and that's an obvious example because that's directly based on uh, on the Shakespeare play. But the point is, is that whether it's, you know, Homer's Odyssey or Iliad or, um, you know, the works of Charles Dickens or William Shakespeare or William Faulkner, these great classics of, of literature um, going all the way back to the Bible, to Aeschylus, to Euripides, they have had a tremendous influence, certainly on Western culture, and continue to have that influence. But the difference is, the reason why it's important for them to read this stuff is because otherwise what they're getting for their influences is a copy of a copy of a copy. Right. Yeah. They're getting a watered-down version of these classics. They go back and read these classics, and one of the things that they'll find is, oh, well, I've sort of seen this before. This was kind of in Star Wars, or this was sort of, they sort of used this in Star Trek, or, you know, in Indiana Jones, or any of those things. They'll find elements in reading these things, and they'll be like, hey, they copied this in, from Terminator. Well, you know, the Iliad didn't copy anything from Terminator. It's the other <laughs> way around. But the, but the point is, right. is that um, by reading the originals, they get the direct influence of these things. To use or not use, it doesn't mean they have to be copying directly or indirectly, but at least they have a fundamental understanding of uh, what the basis of our culture is going back to Beowulf or Gilgamesh or any of these mm-hmm. things. Um, if not, what they're getting is someone being influenced. It's like putting a picture in a Xerox machine, and the first copy looks pretty crisp. Then you copy that copy, and it's a little hazier, and it keeps going down the line. If you keep just copying the copies as opposed to going back and Xeroxing the original again, then you know, pretty soon it's going to look like crap, to be honest. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really essential for anyone who's serious about being a writer to go back and look at the originals. Decide for yourself what you, your influences are going to be. Decide for yourself whether you want to make use of Shakespeare or uh, Ford Maddox Ford or whatever, um, as opposed to... Um, being influenced by those things and not even knowing it because you haven't read them. You've read stuff that came after. Yeah. And so uh, to me, you know, uh, whether you, I mean, I was an English major, you know, I was in college and, and all that stuff, whether you major in that stuff or not, doesn't really matter. It's easy enough to find this stuff online and on bookstore in the library and just read. Oh. Um, and by the way, you should be reading the newspaper too. I mean, you should, it's not just about reading old stuff. You should be keeping up on current events because you'll find inspiration in all sorts of places. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think the classics are very important. Also, I just talked a lot about Western culture, but reading history is really important. A lot of the stuff, for example, in Gargoyles that got us our best stories was from actual Scottish history. Mm. Again, all this Taino mythology I'm using in Rain and Spirits uh, isn't something you'd find by just a study of Western culture. And we did, you know, episodes um, of uh, gargoyles, for example, that dealt with African mythology, that dealt with Egyptian mythology, that dealt with uh, 
um, South American history and mythology with Japanese culture. Um, so I wouldn't limit myself to Western influences either because this is now a very global planet and there's a lot of great fodder all over the world, not just from Europe and America. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not about just the, the, the classic literature. It is about, uh, the history and kind of the combination of the two, even with, uh, you know, the great phenomenon that has been game of Thrones immediately upon watching it and then ultimately reading it. Uh, I, I immediately recognize this is basically just war of the roses. <laughs> it's, yeah. And so anyone who makes that connection already knows that the Starks are not going to have a happy ending. Yeah. I mean, you know, all that stuff is, is in there. And, and again, war of the, Ro- uh, war of the roses. game of Thrones is, uh, is, pretty fantastic i mean uh but if the next person to do something in that vein was using game of thrones as their influence right as opposed to going back and using the war of the roses just as an example and sort of starting from scratch then things just become more and more derivative and less and less interesting very true so you know i know i sound pedantic but then again i was an english teacher for years so (laughs) you stuck yeah, you you have that right. Well, we're we're thrilled to to have you on the show. Of course, you know this is Flash TV Talk. We're a Flash centric podcast, getting ready for the the new and upcoming series. Uh, and to kind of get you know really hyped, we've been looking at Flash and other media, and we just came off of a retrospective of Young Justice season one. And we thought, you know, as we're looking back on it, who better to have on than uh, than Greg Wiseman and uh, to set us straight and uh, kind of un- dive into some of our thoughts and theories along the way, if if you're up for it. I'm up for it. All right. Uh, Well, one thing that really struck me with the series as a whole is that when Young Justice, just from the get-go, you got the sense that there was a lot of universe building, that this was not, you know, it it started out not even all that small. It was just constantly building upon itself and really didn't feel like just a, a Young Justice show. It felt like a DC Universe show. And, you know, while other shows had kind of come between this and, say, Justice League, fans had been used to... I mean, almost a decade, more than a decade's worth of continuity from Batman the Animated Series to Justice League Unlimited. And so this really was kind of the first time that we got something so big uh, after that long period of time. And so I guess my question is, was that kind of a marching order from the get-go? Did it happen naturally? Or, or where is that? Am I even picking up on that correctly? Uh, you definitely are, and it was a marching order from the get-go. I mean, I, I'm not, I might take issue with, uh, you know, I think the Batman particularly in its later seasons, tried to widen their universe. And I definitely think Batman Brave and the Bold. So, you know, um, obviously it's got a goofy edge to it. Yeah, yeah. It also told some serious stories in there. And, uh, you know, I only wrote a couple freelance episodes of Brave and the Bold and a a handful of For the Batman. So I think I can be fairly objective about those shows because I didn't produce them. I wasn't on staff. I was just a guy who wrote a few episodes of each. And my episodes in particular weren't universe building per se, but I think the point I'd make is that both those shows attempted in their own way to do the same sort of thing. Um, But yes, for us, without a doubt, our marching orders from the top, from the beginning was we weren't simply doing a show about six teenagers. We were doing an entire DC universe show in a very theoretical sense. That was also supposed to help us on the toy front. It didn't quite work out that way, but, um, you know, that was one of those selling points to Mattel was, um, hey, yeah, we're doing these six teenagers, 
but we're also going to have Batman and Superman and Aquaman in this show. We're also going to have all these villains. We're going to do a show that encompasses, given enough episodes and or issues of the companion comic book, the entire DC Universe, at least the Earth-16 version of it. And that was, without a doubt, the marching orders that Brandon and I received from the moment we started. I really enjoyed uh, the idea of the team being used as a covert unit by the Justice League because this was my first time watching it through. When I, when they, you know, proposed that idea, I was like, "That's really, really neat." Uh, so, you know, they're using them on missions that require more discretion and things like that. Uh, I was curious as what was the inspiration for that concept of using the team as this covert, uh, covert well, team. First off, uh, all credit for that should really go to Brandon Bietti, um, my partner on the series, the other producer also the smartest guy in any room at any given moment. Um, <laughs> and in terms of the inspiration for it, I think uh, the short answer is fear. Um, we were hired originally to uh, develop a Green Lantern series, which we did. We spent a few months on Green Lantern. Um, and then for whatever reason, um, from a corporate strategy standpoint, they decided to put Green Lantern on hold um, and eventually they brought, well, since we were busy on Young Justice, eventually brought in a different staff who developed their own Green Lantern show from scratch, nothing to do with what we were, had been working on. Um, but one of the aspects of that Green Lantern show was a sort of covert, op un, covert ops unit for the Green Lantern. So we had that notion in our heads. Um, when they took us off Green Lantern, they briefly put us on Space Ghost, which we were very excited about. <laughs> and then they decided they didn't want to do Space Ghost. So um, <laughs> they, uh, our boss, Sam Register, came to us and said, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to do uh, Young Justice. You like that title. Mm. And um, our reaction collectively, Brandon and my reaction was God, no. <laughs> um, and the reason for that was there was this show that had been – pretty damn successful creatively and commercially called Justice League Unlimited. And it wasn't that long ago. And on the other side, very different show, but also very successful creatively and commercially was Teen Titans. And we were basically being asked, do Teen Titans and Justice League? And we were terrified. <laughs> we just thought, you know, we would hugely suffer in comparison that, you know, it would be very difficult to find something new to do with this show. And then it really was Brandon who sort of stepped up and said, all right, well, what if we did this as the Justice League's covert unit? And suddenly it wasn't a superhero show. Mm. It was a spy show. Mm. Yeah. And that was very interesting. So we always said that it was first and foremost a spy show. Secondly, a show about real teenagers who have families, who have school. One of the things that was different from Teen Titans nothing better or worse, just different, is that Teen Titans, the TV series, was set in this tower, and those five kids sort of lived in a vacuum. They didn't have mentors. They didn't have parents, per se, most of the time. Um, they didn't have lives outside that tower. We were going to make a real effort to show uh, a more realistic take of where these kids were, where they lived, how they lived, um, how they went to school, all that stuff. And as a superhero show, that was a distant third. Well, maybe not distant, but it was definitely third position. So spy show first, show about teenagers second, show about superheroes third. Mm -hmm. 
and that was sort of the genesis of uh of that idea but really again it was brandon who came up with it i have to give him credit for it it's a great concept you know we've uh you know we've heard stories about stipulations that were put on specific characters that you could or could not use. Uh, and, and we've heard that that was even early on, but did you find it difficult to kind of work within those stipulations while you're building upon, you know, the, to kind of lead up to this bigger universe? Uh, yeah, it was not difficult for starters. Um, we, we were initially, uh, given a very short list of characters. I mean, very short count them on one hand, mm. uh, list of characters that were off limits to us. Um, and we were given that list early enough, uh, you know, it, it happened to include both Wonder Girls, Donna Troy and Cassie Sandsmore. Really? And a couple other characters. Um, and we were given that list early enough that, okay, Wonder Girl was actually probably the Donna Troy version was actually a character that we would have been interested in doing in one way or another in season one. Um, but... We could, and we were told that early enough that it wasn't a problem. I mean, I compiled a list of over 50 teenage DC Comics heroes um, for us to choose from. And so, okay, sure, we had to knock a couple off that list. Mm. But um, when you've got 55 others to choose from, it it doesn't strike you as a tragedy. You know what I mean? Um, So... uh, then partway through season one, we were told, don't worry about that list anymore. Just whoever you want. <laughs> now, it was too late for us to put Donna in season one. Would have loved to, but it was too late. Right. But it allowed us to put Cassie in season two, and we actually had a plan to put Donna in season two as well. Weren't able to do that for different reasons. Um, uh, we were working on an episode um, called uh, Satisfaction in season two um, where there's a wedding shower and we wanted to have our version of Donna Troy and our version of Mary Bromfield as uh, guests at this wedding shower. And then when Captain Cold tried to rob the bank across the street, we'd see them in costume. Um, Oh, nice as uh, Troya and uh, Sergeant Marvel, which was our versions of the Donna Troy Wonder Girl and the Mary Bromfield, Mary Marvel. Um, and so we had that plan, but when we actually came to making that episode, uh, we just didn't have enough man hours. That would have required four more character models, four new characters, uh, one each for Mary and Donna in civilian clothes and one each for Mary and Donna in their superhero costumes. And we literally just, there just wasn't time to design four additional models for this one episode. It was a bummer not to have them, but obviously not a tragedy because the audience wasn't expecting them per se. Right. Um, But it was a bummer for that reason. It was a bummer because we were also going to include them in uh, the last episode of the season in that big group of heroes at the end of season two, because we hadn't designed them for, for earlier in the season, we didn't have those designs on hand and didn't have time to design them for the end of the season. Um, so Mary and Donna wound up falling out of the series. But getting back to the original question, as I've gone off on this huge tangent, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it really wasn't an issue at all. We had 
um, a small group of characters that we weren't allowed to use. Uh, and then by the time the season progressed, even that list was no longer an issue. And, and when we did season two, literally the restrictions were about time and budget, not about we couldn't, couldn't use. So that was kind of a non-issue. Since you weren't able to use, uh, you know, the, the Wonder Girls, is that why Miss Martian really became kind of a, a such a large central? I mean, I know obviously there are a lot of uh, female heroes on the team, but early on she was really the big female presence on the team. Well, I, I don't think it was because of missing Wonder Girl per se, um, other than uh, we just sort of started off again with this list of 50 plus heroes and tried to come up with a nice group of uh, six that would be our, our original leads and our original uh, team members um, that had a, uh, that covered a lot of spectrums. Um, we wanted both male and female. We wanted uh, uh, different ethnicities on the team. We wanted characters with superpowers. We wanted characters that had no superpowers, just mad skills. <laughs> and in particular, one of the themes of the series, one of the most important themes of the series, was secrets and lies. So we were looking for characters mm-hmm. who were telling lies, who were keeping secrets. And Miss um, Marsh had worked for us on all sorts of levels for that. Obviously, she was a feminine presence on the team. Um, but she also had, you know, this massive secret, um, and thus was telling all these lies to cover it. And, uh, so that was interesting to us. She brought a whole different perspective to things because she was from Mars. Um, and on the one hand, because she'd been in essence educated by American sitcoms from the 1970s, uh, had this sort of traditional feeling to her and yet she was still looking at things from a sort of alien perspective. Mm. Um, and all that was very interesting. Same was true with Artemis. I mean, Artemis was our second female lead. Um, and we really wanted, again, Artemis has all these secrets. She's telling lies. Um, she's covering for her family or covering up her family so that people don't realize what her heritage is. I mean, look, DC comics, uh, when I made that list, DC Comics has four female, blonde, teenage archers. Mm. Four. Because three female, blonde, teenage archers clearly wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we had a lot to choose from there. Um, And ultimately, uh, Artemis seemed to be the one that had the most interesting backstory that could give us the most there from from that standpoint. And so that's who we went with. Um, but it, you know, we were looking for that from all the characters in one way or another. And, uh, and then also I think there was an element for us of wanting to pay tribute to the original Teen Titans of the sixties in one form or another. And I think that was the biggest reason we were bummed about Donna was because she was one of those first, not one of the original three, but one of the first, uh, certainly five, um, and uh, so, you know, it was a bummer that we never got done in the show, but that's all it was, a bummer, not a tragedy. 
So, a bit of a switch of gears here. Uh, you wrote several of the episodes of this series. Uh, of the episodes that you wrote, which was your favorite and why? I think, ultimately, uh, my favorite was probably Misplaced, uh, mm. which was, I think, the 19th episode of season one. Right, yeah. Um, it's the one where Clarion and the other sorcerers split the world in two with the adults in one world and the kids in the other. Yes, yes. Um, and I, there's a lot I like about that, the structure of it where we first follow the kids and then start over and follow the adults need for Captain Marvel, i.e. Billy Batson, to step up because he would be the key person who could communicate from one side of the world to the other. It just was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with Billy and then this whole idea that Aqualad and Batman would have to communicate via Billy. Mm. Um, just that image, almost split-screen-esque of... Uh, in essence, Aqualad and Batman having this conversation, which in essence was going through Cap and Billy. Uh, and then, you know, so there's a lot of humor in the episode. There's a lot of really fun stuff. There's a lot of weird shit <laughs> in the episode, which is fun. Um, and then, you know, there's tragedy, you know, that solving this problem comes at a tremendous cost to Tara and Zatanna. Um, and so, you know, you know, we, uh, had been teasing Zatanna for a handful of episodes, uh, and this is what finally brings her, makes her a full-time member of the team, which on the one hand was great, but on the other hand for her, as much as she had wanted to be on the team, this was not the way she wanted it to happen. And so it's, you know, became a be careful what you wish for kind of story. Right. Um, so it's my... You know, I, I really do love every episode. I mean, like a, uh, you know, uh, proud parent, I'm happy with everything that we did. Um, but the animation on that episode also came out great. And so if I had to pick one episode to sort of say, um, this is my favorite, I think Misplaced is probably it. Yeah, that's a great episode. It's one of our favorites, too, back when we were looking over it. Now, when we went through the entire season, uh, you know, obviously being a Flash-centric podcast, we were specifically looking at the journey that Wally West went on, and it became very evident, and we kind of did a little research here to make sure that this was the case, but, you know, while other series have kind of chosen to focus primarily on one Flash, be it Wally or Barry, I believe Young Justice is the first series to ever showcase all four characters who have gone by the Flash at some point, both uh, uh, Barry and Wally, but also Bart and Jay. Uh, was that always kind of an idea of, of let's go full on flash family or did it just kind of happen naturally? Uh, no, that was pretty much the plan from the beginning. Um, we wanted to start with Wally. Um, I have, you know, tremendous affection for Wally. He's probably my favorite of the flash characters and my second favorite's Jay. Mm. Um, and, so this idea of uh, tradition as we were building this sort of new version of the DC universe and trying to create a, a sort of coherent timeline for it, not trying to create, we did create mm. a coherent timeline for it. The idea that um, we came up with this basic idea, which is spelled out in more detail in our companion comic that on the show itself, but I still think is, um, you know, depicted consistently in the show, which is that, 
you know, uh, you want something to be coherent. You don't want accident after accident taking place just as a big coincidence so, um, or convenience. So the idea was that Jay had been in a lab and there had been an accident and he had gotten the powers of the Flash. And Barry was a huge fan of the Flash, literally a Flash fanboy like you. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so he made contact with Jay, but Barry was a scientist. Uh, and so Barry studied what happened to Jay and recreated that accident on purpose under laboratory conditions hmm. so that Barry winds up with Jay's powers, but even greater. And that Wally, nephew to, by marriage to Barry, um, is a big fan of Flash as well. Now, he's a fan of the new Barry Allen Flash, but he doesn't know his uncle is Flash until he finds Barry's journals. He realizes not only is his uncle the Flash, but that his uncle knows how to recreate this experiment. So he spends a lot of time hinting. Don't you think, you know, Batman has Robin. Don't you think uh, <laughs> Flash needs a sidekick? And Barry's like, no, I think Flash uh, is doing all right on his own, you know, kind of thing. And Wally's like, you know, <laughs> and so finally, you know, Wally's very smart um, and, a, and, you know, budding scientist in his own right. Yeah. So he sets out to recreate, again, intentionally, Barry's experiment in his garage. <laughs> um, like so it, it literally blows up in his face. It nearly kills him. Um. Barry feels tremendously guilty, uh, even though he had really nothing to do with it. Mm. Um, Wally survives, and he's got powers about on the level of Jay's. So he's never quite as fast as Barry is. Um, you know, Barry can approach the speed of light. Wally can approach the speed of sound. Right. Um, that's a huge difference, and Barry can control his molecules and... and uh, walk through walls in essence and Wally can't do that. There are real limits to what Wally can do and yet what he can do is still incredibly amazing and Barry feels really guilty so he makes Wally his sidekick which is great but the problem for Wally is is that deep down as much as he's in denial about it on the surface deep down he knows that Barry didn't want a sidekick didn't want him mm. and that Barry did this out of guilt. Now, I think by the time we meet them, Barry's sort of past that. He's had a great time having Wally as a sidekick. They make a good team. They've done a lot of great stuff together, done the hero thing, done the mentor-protege thing, and Barry's kind of okay with it. But Wally's never forgotten that he, in essence, forced himself on Barry. Hmm. And that level of insecurity, which, of course, he covers with bravado and obnoxiousness and all sorts of things, is... <laughs> a big part of Wally's personality, at least in Young Justice. Um, then you get to season two, and we introduce Bart, who's Barry's grandson from the future. Um, and because he's genetically inherited Barry's powers, his powers are up at, at uh, um, Barry's level. And what was interesting, in looking online at some of the fan response, and seemed to think that I hated Wally because I gave Bart and Barry the you know the top-notch flash powers, mm. and I gave Wally and Jay sort of a lower level. 
the irony, of course, is Wally and Jay are my two favorites. <laughs> and, the, and to me, a hero is about someone who gets by with less. Right. Yeah. Um, right. And so, you know, I, uh, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like I don't like Barry and Bart. I do, but there's no doubt in my mind, Wally's my favorite. Jay's number two. Barry's three, you know. Um, and uh, so, you know, this notion that, Brandon and I didn't like Wally because we didn't give him full flash powers, although the opposite is true. Right. You know, we liked him better because of that. So that's me being defensive because I've seen a lot of that online. Lots of people accuse <laughs> me of not liking Wally. I love Wally. Yeah. Um, and I love, you know, the way Jason Spizak brought Wally to life. You know, Jason's just amazing. Yeah, great voice for him. Yeah, it's really interesting because in season one, Wally's really unique because he seems to have the most stable home life, uh, and, and as we does. become, yeah, yeah, and, and as we become more personally connected to his civilian relationships, uh, the season two finale just becomes all the more painful. Uh, was was Wally's fate known from day one? Uh, it was known from day two of the development of season uh, two. I don't okay. think it was known from day one, but. Uh, uh, when we started, you know, seriously sitting down to work on season two, we knew how it was going to end. There was a brief moment when we thought about um, it being Barry who goes at the end and Wally then steps up and becomes Flash and Bart becomes uh, Kid Flash. And, and there's a legit argument to take that path. Sure. Um, there's the history of Crisis on Infinite Earths in the comics that justifies it and there's also that notion of moving up. But uh, ultimately for us, our decision was that uh, the death of Barry just wouldn't carry any real resonance for the audience. Um, he, you know, Barry had appeared a handful of times, but uh, not to say that they didn't like him, but there's no way the audience could possibly have felt for Barry the way they felt for Wallace. Right. Um, and it also made sense given our universe and the power levels of our characters, that Wally would be the guy who would be the most heroic. In other words, because he wasn't as fast, he was putting himself at risk, and yet for the safety of the planet and the people he loved and the people he cared about and the entire human race, Wally sacrifices himself in a way that the others can't. Um, and... So, yeah, pretty much, uh, again, we had a brief moment where we thought about it being buried, but we very quickly just realized that it had to be, it had to be Wally. That was a good move, too, because for me, that really elevates that character. You know, you, you mentioned Crisis, and it really makes Wally that central sacrificial figure. And even going so far as what you did with Bart becoming the new Kid Flash, just like in the comics, how, you know, uh, like you say, Wally became the new Flash— like it just paralleled that so well, and to me, that that really that was such a big moment for that character, and such a huge way to uh, it just I don't know, it was a big emotional impact, and really uh, sent the the character out the right way. I think. Yeah, I mean, one, you know, there are a couple of what they call proofs of the pudding. The day we we recorded the episode, Jason Spizak comes in to read the episode, and we know Brandon and I know he's gotten the script the night before because that's how we. That's how it worked. Um, the actors always got their scripts the night before, not because because we were always that cutting it that close. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, Jason comes in and, you know, Brian and I are both nervous about how Jason's going to react because, mm. 
by that time, it was fairly clear we weren't going to have a season three. It wasn't definite, but it, the writing was definitely on the wall, so to speak. But, you know, even if we were sort of cutting him off there and we thought he'd be potentially upset, he was very grateful. He said, you know, you don't often get sort of the beginning, middle, and end of a character like this in this series. And so he appreciated um, having this sort of heroic exit. And then the other proof is that the Internet hates us uh, <laughs> for doing it. You know, in other words, um, you know, we uh, – to this day on Twitter, I get people um, giving me hell over that choice. <laughs> and what that means to me is that Wally mattered to them. Yeah. You know, it uh, it was something that they cared about that character and, and his um, demise had an emotional effect on, on them. And although that's not necessarily a happy feeling, what it means is that you know, we were successful in making the audience care about this character. Um, and uh, so I think we made the right call. Not yeah. the easy call, but the right call. Yeah, agreed. This this corner of the internet definitely does not hate you for that. We we <laughs> respect that decision. And, and I like I said, I think it really elevates him to, uh, to a, a Barry-esque level uh, by making him that sacrificial person. Uh, so just kind of looking back over, you know, both seasons, what do you personally take away as a, as a favorite moment or achievement or, or, or a victory uh, just from the project as a whole? Oh, you know, I don't, there isn't any one thing per se, but, uh, you know, I, I think that we got to tell 46 stories on the TV show, another 26 in the companion comic and uh, a last story in the video game, uh, all of which are canon. We created a cohesive, coherent universe with characters that clearly are the C's that I'm doing there. I didn't mean to have all that alliteration. I apologize. <laughs> uh, uh, that clearly, you know, worked for the audience. They seem to appreciate Earth-16 and, and our view of that. We'd love, both Brandon and I, uh, on the TV side, and Chris Jones and I on the comic book side, would love to get back to Earth-16 and do more stories in this vein. I don't know if and when that'll be possible, but we haven't given up. You know, we've got, we have this great diverse cast of characters. I'm very proud of uh, our version of, of Aqualad Calderam. I think he was a unique and original character. I think uh, Artemis was based on what came before, but I think our version of Artemis yeah. um, was likewise uh, very unique and original. I think our version of Miss Martian and even our version of Superboy um, were all sort of, uh, unique takes on those characters that really worked in the context. And then likewise, I love our Zatanna. I love that we got to do Rocket, at least for a few episodes. Um, and I think, you know, our Robin and Kid Flash are among the best versions of them out there. Mm. But it's not limited to that. You know, I mean, I, I'm our Justice League was a lot of fun. Um, we didn't get to play with it too much because the, they weren't the focus of our show, obviously. But, you know, I could do a whole series on that Justice League if I were given the chance. Um, and really liked what we did with Green Arrow, with Black Canary, um, Captain Adam, Captain Marvel, especially. Um, and even Superman and Batman, Wonder Woman, Red Tornado, definitely, Martian Manhunter. 
you know, the list is kind of endless. We had really fun villains, um, especially the seven members of the light, but just had a good time. And we had an amazing voice cast uh, with Jamie Thomason as our voice director. Mm. Um, but the whole cast was really stellar. Um, Tim Curry was so much fun to write for as G. Gordon Godfrey. Um, that was just sort of a hoot to be able to write speeches for him and um, watch him uh, perform them. It was just a lot of fun. And uh, it was just a great experience. You know, I, I wish it could have gone on longer, but no regrets. It was just a lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. We we really enjoyed doing a retrospective on it. And for me, Young Justice, it, it to some to some extent, it feels almost like kind of the animated firefly for me in that, uh, you know, it, it just ended far too soon. <laughs> and I know that it's got a, an avid follower base and, and a lot of supporters of that show uh, still today. I guess it was yesterday, or, and it kind of hit the internet this morning. Um, at San Diego Comic-Con, we know that there's going to be this Batman for All Seasons panel. And uh, there's a note that says... Attendees who stick around till the end will be privy to a special announcement that will excite both young and old fans. Now, the young is very specifically highlighted and capitalized in that notation. And so, of course, the Internet is running crazy with this. Uh, any any kind of thoughts or, or comment on that situation? No, I uh, have no comment or thought. Okay. D- didn't want to put that. you on the spot, but it just came out this morning. So. If, if people are thinking... Oh, we're coming back with season three of Young Justice. I guess I should just say, uh, if they are, that's news to me. So um, I, I don't. If that's what people are taking from that message, that um, we're coming back, I think the answer to that is no. So um, I just don't want fans to get their hopes up about something that's really not realistic at all. Good deal. Um, I'm not saying we never will come back, but that can't be what this announcement. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Greg, man, we really appreciate you joining us and, and uh, talking up some Young Justice. Uh, where can listeners go to keep up with your future projects? Two ways. Uh, the, the first is they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, at Greg underscore Weissman, W-E-I-S-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter every night, at least for an hour or so. Um, that's way too much time, probably. But uh, <laughs> uh, And then I've been doing that for about a year. They've got short, brief questions, non-spoiler. I try to respond to everybody who tweets me uh, and give my followers something to, you know, as much news as I'm allowed to relay. Um, And uh, otherwise, uh, uh, I've been doing this website, uh, askgregweissman.com. It's all one word, askgregweissman.com, where I've been answering questions originally about Gargoyles, but in more recent years about Spectacular Spider-Man, Young Justice, uh, various other things, uh, the industry, life, whatever I feel like, basically. (laughs) Um, But I've been answering questions there for 17, 18 years, and uh, there's a huge archive of my answers. So, you know, if you're looking for information on some obscure character from Gargoyles or whatever, you can go to the archives and it'll be there. On the off chance that you've come up with a question that I've never answered before which seems unlikely but it's possible there's you can ask questions there and it takes me you know i've got a backlog of about two months three months worth of questions but i get to them all eventually so people can uh post questions there and again if you've got a question that requires a, a, an answer of any length whatsoever going to com is a much better 
uh, Austin and asking it on Twitter because, you know, on Twitter I'm limited to 140 characters. 140 characters Rough so, on the English uh, professor right there. I'm, not gonna answer, <laughs> I'm just not going to answer a question that requires a detailed response in that forum, but I will at Ask Greg. Well, i got one last question for you. We were wondering if there's anything you can tell us about Star Wars Rebels. Without losing my firstborn child? <laughs> <laughs> yes, like not, nothing, nothing that would get you in trouble or anything like that, but you know, we're all really, really excited about the show. Uh, you know, there really isn't much I can say uh, that I'm allowed to say <laughs> other than the show's really great. I think people are, are really going to love it. Premieres this fall. Uh, I know they're doing a, they announced that they're doing a panel for it uh, at San Diego um, this month where I'm sure they will reveal a little more info. I'm not exactly sure what they're choosing to or not to reveal, so I'm not going to even attempt to scoop or not scoop. But um, the show's great. It's got a phenomenal, phenomenal voice cast. Uh, it's got the talents of the amazing Simon Kinberg, and it's got Dave Filoni, who was, uh, you know, the Clone War, Star Wars Clone Wars, um, and is really the heart and soul of Star Wars Rebels. Um, I'm the least of it, you know, but I like to think I brought a little something to the show, but really it's got this amazing crew, amazing cast, and this amazing, uh, you know, property to be a part of in a very interesting era. You know, it's the era, uh, in between episodes three and four. So in between, uh, you know, and it's really about the, how the rebellion came to be. And, uh, I I think it's going to, kick some major ass uh, when it starts airing this fall. Well, that's about all I can say. Well, as Palpatine says, we'll be watching your career with great interest. That sounds uh, sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, Greg, man, once again, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I, I know that we've really enjoyed talking to you. I know that your fans just, uh, you know, love getting this information and getting these new avenues to uh, engage with you. So uh, just, again, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Anytime. We want to really thank Greg Wiseman for joining us. Had a great time talking with him. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out his website at www.askgregwiseman.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Flash TV Talk. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Flash TV Talk. Of course, links to all this and more can be found from our website, flashtvtalk.com. Hope you enjoyed this interview. And if you're looking more from us, don't worry. We'll be back in a flash. A member of the Pottery Network. For more information on this and other shows, please visit pottery.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For ninety dollars more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For hundred and thirty more, you'll be a swole member, and for just three hundred dollars more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.